Good day, everyone. Welcome to our episode about Russia during the First World War. I hope you enjoy. In these past few months, the world has been sent into chaos over a pandemic, a virus, a flu-like virus, an advanced flu, you could say. And this thing has turned the world on its head. It's definitely turned this country on its head. And it's scary. It scares people. The fact that something so contagious can spread throughout person to person, causing them illness that could suffer possibly death. But in World War One, there was multiple types of viruses. You have the Spanish flu, of course, that killed millions. But there was also a virus that was so dangerous to the monarchical society that Germany knew that if they unleashed it, there could be repercussions not only on their enemy, but on themselves. Now this virus that they wanted to spread, it, it, it wasn't an illness, it wasn't a flu. It was an idea. An idea that could infect an entire population and force it to overthrow their monarchies. But towards the beginning of 1917 and the end of 1916, they had to figure out a way to win this war. And that meant at least taking out one of the countries on either side of them, France or Russia. And the impeccable timing that Germany had to unleash this virus into Russia was exquisite. And Russia crumbled because of it. Now, the reason why Germany's timing was so great was because of what Russia had been going through. Not only during the war, but even before the war, Russia was shaky at best as far as a monarchy goes. Multiple rebellions, strikes, workers in the streets refusing to work. Russia was having problems. But World War I made those problems ten times worse. Now, we've talked earlier about Russia just being this big bear, this big, blind, and deaf bear that kind of throws its weight around. And it's scary at first until you get up close with Russia and you realize that they, they are extremely, extremely disorganized.
Now, Russia's been suffering from casualties during this war. But I want to first talk about how their monarchy has been suffering. And that all starts with an, one man. One man that, of course, should have been a nobody in the books of history. But like... Gavrilo Princip, Grigory Rasputin has been made almost a legend, a thing of myth. And when I first saw the cartoon about Rasputin and, and Anastasia, I thought that's exactly what it was. I thought it was a Disney movie. That this Rasputin character is wasn't real. It was just a villain in a, in a Disney movie. But Rasputin's true story, Rasputin's real story, even makes you step back even more and question what reality really is. Now, Rasputin grew up in Siberia. Siberia. And he was a commoner, and he loved to drink, and he loved to cheat on his wife. But eventually he converted. He converted to a different sect of Christianity. And during this time, Russia had a bunch of different cult-like sects of Christianity, and the belief, one of the beliefs in this branch of Christianity that he was a part of believed that it was necessary to sin. That it was necessary to sin in order to be saved. And that's extremely interesting and Rasputin was a huge practicer of this. This meant he was a holy man that could still drink, that could still sleep with other women, and that could be incredibly vile. Now, if you look up pictures of this, and I, I want you to look up pictures of this, because not only for this class, but, but to actually see the man's face. It's haunting. Really, it is. And the fact that he could call himself a holy man blows my mind. But how does someone like this come in contact with the Tsar and eventually become the Tsar's favorite peasant holy man? Now, Rasputin was mostly associated with the royal family because of what they could do for... Tsar Nicholas's the second son, Alexei. Alexei had hemophilia. So you could imagine being a young boy with hemophilia and you know a simple bruise or a cut could kill you. And that's what his parents had to deal with. And his parents are also somewhat of a an oddity or 
just something that doesn't really happen a lot in these monarchical societies. Tsar Nicholas II marries a German. Alexandra. And this was a couple that actually loved each other. As far as the sources say, and, and what was, you know, provable, from what people have, have able been to come up with was that the Tsar and the Tsarina truly loved each other and truly loved their children and actually spent time with their children. And Alexei having this problem with hemophilia, Rasputin, this mythical creature, was able to not heal, but ease Alexei's pain and stop Alexei's wounds from getting worse. And doctors couldn't explain it. Doctors still can't explain it today. And this would happen right in front of the Tsar and the Tsarina's eyes. This young boy who would suffer greatly, be soothed by this peasant holy man. Now, Rasputin was a kind of guy that wouldn't just drink, you know, at parties and he would get drunk. He would wake up, and before lunch he would finish about two bottles of wine. This man was a hard partier, and he was known to be uh, associated with scandals of holding orgies in his home, and he was married with kids at the time, and any time... It would be called out to her. She would say, that's his burden to bear. He's helping those sinners. That was what they were living with. And throughout this time, during the First World War, you know, there would be many falling outs with the Tsar. You know... Rasputin would fall out of favor with the Tsar because he said something stupid at the dinner table. He said something bad that offended somebody, and he would get banished from the palace, and then, you know, Alexei would start to hurt again, and he would get called right back, and, and he would heal him, and then he would stay around the, uh, the palace for a little while. And the nobles and the higher-ups of Russian society would find his humor and his, his, I guess, ignorance of societal norms cheeky or charming. So Rasputin would refer to, you know, a certain person at the table as fella or, or big man or things of that nature. He would pinch some of the other wives on their legs underneath the table. and This was a, a peasant that was living amongst royalty and able to do whatever he wanted because he had his claws into this family. Now, a lot of people think 
that the Tsar was being controlled by his wife to bring back the uh, to bring back Rasputin every time that he would get banished. Um, but new sources and, and, and new people looking into this mostly say that they couldn't quit him because of what Rasputin could do for his for their son, Alexei. It wasn't so much of a controlling thing from uh, from the Tsarina. It was the fact that he really was able to soothe their son and ease him of his pain. This one particular time that he was banished, he was all the way back in Siberia. And it had looked like it was the end for Alexei. He had... They had been on a... Uh, a boat ride, I believe, and he had fallen out of the boat and developed a hematoma. And he was put to bed rest, and he was in so much pain, and the doctors were co would come in, and they pretty much told the Tsar that it's, it's time to say your goodbyes. This young boy... And the Tsarina sent a telegram to Rasputin to, to, to come, to come to, to come to the palace and heal their son once again. And we need you, we need you. And apparently there's a famous telegram, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't exactly, uh, uh, I don't have the quote right in front of me. Actually, uh, yeah, I do. It's right here. Um, he sends back this message to the Tsarina saying, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. So they had the doctors get away from him. And the next morning, Alexei, Alexei's condition changed and Alexei's bleeding stopped the following day and some people have started to wonder if the doctors were actually giving Alexei aspirin because aspirin during this time was apparently the miracle worker but it's also a blood thinner so, with somebody with, you know, hemophilia, this could, this could kill them. And historians think perhaps that the fact that Rasputin told uh, the Tsarina to make sure the doctors leave him alone, that it would stop the intake of aspirin and it would possibly help um, better. Alexei's condition but it still doesn't change you know what the Tsar and Tsarina were seeing and because of that particular situation Rasputin was able to come back to the palace he found favor again with the royal family and things were heating up things were getting really really bad on the eastern front for Russia
So, Tsar Nicholas II believes that it would do the most good. And remember, Rasputin is also kind of uh, together with the royal family, and he also kind of supports this decision that Tsar Nicholas II should go out to the front line and encourage his men. So that decision is made. But back on the home front, back on the regular populace, foos, food is scarce. There is a scarcity in food. There is unrest in the streets. No strikes yet, but there is unrest in the streets. And there are now rumors and posted in propaganda that Rasputin is sleeping with the Tsarina. Now, I don't believe that's true. I, I, I truly, uh, from what the sources are saying and, and from what I've been able to read, I, I don't believe that's true. It, it could be, but I, I, I somewhat doubt it just because of how close the Tsarina was to, to her husband. But Rasputin was always in her ear making this suggestion because you gotta, you got to remember that the Tsarina is now in charge since the Tsar is away at the front. And Rasputin greatly has the, the Tsarina's ear, and he's able to make huge decisions without, you know, anybody stopping him. He's able to, to manipulate Russian society this peasant, this holy man peasant, kind of horrible person, because he has the ear of the Tsarina. And she'll write letters to, to Nicholas II on the front, referring to Rasputin as our friend. Our friend says this, should, this is a good idea. Our friend this says this is a good idea. All of these things. And... The other Russian diplomats and, and, and uh, higher society are seeing this happen, and they're getting extremely tired of Rasputin. So they come up with a plot to kill him. Felix Yusupov is one of those conspirators. Now, he claimed to have invited Rasputin to his home after midnight, and he was going to bring him into the basement. And one of the ways that is speculated that he was able to lure him, him in was Yusupov apparently offered Rasputin his wife. And Rasputin said, yes, of course, that's uh, That sounds great. So he invited him over for dinner after midnight. And Yusupov brings him downstairs to the basement. And all the food, the tea, the cakes, the wine, is all laced with cyanide. And Rasputin just digs in and he's eating all of this food and he's taking all of it in. And Yusupov is starting to to freak out because 
nothing is affecting him. Now, at one point, Rasputin is said to have, have, has just stopped for, for a mid-second and look around. And then he belches. And then he just continues. And then at about 2.30 a.m., Yusupov, pulling his hair off, not knowing what to do, excuses himself and he goes upstairs to all his fellow conspirators and he says, what do I do? He's not dying. This isn't happening. What do I do? So Dmitry Pavlovich offers him a revolver. And he asks him, okay, you gotta, you gotta go shoot him. So Yusupov, he, he goes downstairs, back to the basement, and he asks Rasputin, hey, could you, could you look at that painting on the wall, or, 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 or look at, you know, I, I think there was a, a crucifix behind him, and Rasputin is supposed to have turned, and then once he turned, he shot him in the chest. Now, apparently, Yusupov uh, was filled with anger, and after Rasputin had dropped to the floor, he starts slamming him into the ground and, and, and hitting him. And all of a sudden, Rasputin opens his eyes and starts to scream. Now, a blood-curdling scream. And after screaming at them, he starts saying, I am sure to tell the queen, I'm sure to tell the queen, I'm sure to tell the Tsarina, like he's gonna tattle. And he ends up getting out the basement window, and the co-conspirators chase him down, shoot him twice more, and bayonet him, stab him multiple times, and apparently, just to ensure that the job is done, put a bullet in his brain. After that, they wrap him in a rug, and they throw him into the river. Now, this, this is the part where, where it becomes really legend, or really just mythical. Now, it's all speculation. It's not, it's not you know written in stone that this is exactly what happened but after an investigation was launched and they had found Rasputin's body the coroner is said to have found water in his lungs which means he didn't die from the bullet to the head but from drowning it blows my mind that this this is real life, that this actually happened. Maybe maybe not all of it, maybe a bunch of it is, is, is dramatized, but the fact that this man lived and played the role in history that he did, not realizing what he was doing for the rest of the 20th century, the circumstances that he was, he was supporting in order for this mental virus to infect Russia, he was the guy contributing to all of that. 
uh, he wasn't the main the main factor of it. Uh, I believe there was already extreme unrest in uh, in Russia before Rasputin's time, but he's he's definitely still a factor and a rather large factor. And another large factor is death. Out of all of the other countries that are a part of this world war, Russia took the largest beating. Insane amount of casualties. The Battle of Tannenberg, just one example, the Battle of Tannenberg, the Russians outnumbered the Germans. You know, Russian strength is estimated to about 230,000 men, and German strength is about estimated to 150,000 men. And within nine days, from August 21st to August 30th, 122,000 to 170,000 casualties in nine days. Now to give you reference, just to give you reference, the largest operation in World War II, okay, the, the landing on the beaches of Normandy, you know, supposed to be a bloodbath for the Allies and for the Germans, it took them 20 days to get to 20,000 dead. 20 days. From August 21st to August 30th, 122 to 170,000 casualties. So to give you an idea of how many dead, about 60,000 dead. In nine days. The Germans suffer 1,700 dead, 13,000 casualties. Now, when I say casualties, that means wounded, uh, dead, and missing. Now, missing in this war, you can, you can pretty much go ahead and say that it's dead just because of the amount of artillery and everything that's going on. So we'll, we'll, we'll give it about 6,000 6, dead for the Germans. 6,000 to 60,000. Ten times more. Over the entirety of the war, Russian numbers look like 1.8 million dead. 1.8 million dead and 1.5 civilian dead. Around 2.3 million Russians died during the First World War. This, I don't understand how a country can deal with this. How a country can, can actually look at those numbers and continue to carry on in a war. But they're about to break. They're about to be done. 
And Germany has this idea to send the virus via man, via one man, via Vladimir Lenin. Now, after Rasputin's death and after continued unrest in Russia, they decide to let Lenin across their borders and travel across their lands in order to get to Russia. But they don't just let him travel across the lands. They put him in a sealed train car. This is how dangerous they believe his mind is and how important they think that he is as a weapon in order to kick Russia out of the war. Sends, them o sends him over, sealed train car across their lands. And during this, we have the famous bread strikes or the famous um, women's strikes. I believe it's the famous bread strikes and it happened to land on International Women's Day. So all of these Russian women, and by the way, Russian women are just in another class of their own. You know, Russian women are the reason why they are still a country, in my opinion. Uh, Russian men uh, throughout history have been fighters. They're extremely good fighters. Um, they're very heavy drinkers. Uh, not extremely organized, but Russian women are the backbone of that country. And... The uh, story goes that the strike uh, on the first day, all the women appear and they all come out. And they're striking peacefully. And um, nothing too serious happens that day. Some of the uh, Russian Imperial Guard come out to rally them up. And they kind of throw, not insults at each other, but talking to each other. Why Why are you rounding us up? Why, you're one of us. You're with us. And towards the second day, the crowd ends up getting so, rent, uh, so rowdy that eventually the Russian Cossacks are, are uh, set out. Now, the Russian Cossacks are, are Russian cavalry. And this, this is somewhat of a story, once again... You know, not exactly confirmed, but fairly confirmable. It was this moment with a Russian Cossack that this revolution turned into more than just a strike. All right, now I told you about Russian women and this being uh, near International Women's Day. Apparently, um, there have been misconduct against a woman and this had greatly uh, angered the protesters that took to the streets and more started showing up and more started to join and an army garrison was actually called up and sent out to help quell the protesters and they ended up firing into the crowd killing multiple people and the next day they're going to be asked to do it again and the Russian soldiers some units turned on their commanding officer shooting him killing him and then joining the protesters 
and these Cossacks that were supposed to disperse this crowd started riding through them and kind of riding amongst them and asking them why they were doing this. And somewhat of a, a conversation ensued in between them. And they were still blocking the path. They weren't, they weren't refusing to follow orders, but apparently they were blocking the other military units that had machine guns firing into the crowd. They were blocking their shots. And one of the Russian Cossacks looked at a woman or looked at the crowd and winked. And apparently that wink is what actually sparked the revolution. That actually was the realization point for the people to realize that this was more than just a protest. This was the beginning of their revolution. And they were able to go underneath the Cossacks' legs and overrun the palace and overrun um, uh, the soldiers. And very soon after, um, Nicholas II abdicated his throne. And the Duma, who was kind of like the fake... Um, parliament that had really no power at all decided to make a provisional government. And that's when there is some struggle for power and Lenin, who is guiding the Bolsheviks, kind of takes that power and all, and just like that, Russia's pretty much kicked out of the war. Lenin sets up a peace between Germany and, and Russia. But one of the conditions, if there's to be peace on the Eastern Front, the Russian soldiers are allowed to fraternize with the Germans. And some of those units, a lot of those unit, units, aren't allowed to come back home, aren't allowed to be sent to the Western Front, because of this mind virus of communism. I keep saying mind virus, and I, and I haven't really thrown in, but it, it is communism, it is Marxism, it is this Marxist ideology that is now spreading in between the Russian soldiers, the Russian regular soldiers, and now is spreading into the German soldiers. And the German soldiers are starting to, to spread that around each other. So you're not going to take a unit that's been, you know, so anti-monarchical -monar and, and now liberal about it and discussing Marxist ide ideologies with Russians from the Eastern Front to the Western Front where you have to win the war and so many soldiers are breaking daily? You're not going to do that. There's no way. The Germans played a very dangerous game and they ended up feeling those repercussions after the war. But as far as their timing and their strategy, it was perfect. It was the perfect amount of chaos to knock Russia out of the war. But it did more than just give them a small win in the East. 
they pretty much formed what the rest of the 20th century looked like. Imagine on Dertog, the Schlieffen plan, the, the, the very first few days of the war where, where Germany had this great idea for a knockout punch. Imagine that happened. Imagine that they won the war against France and Russia and Britain. Where are we at today? Is there a World War II? Is there a spread of communism? Is there any need to fight the Korean War? Would the Vietnam War even exist? Would there even be a nuclear age? Would the making of nuclear weapons have happened or occurred? Would Osama bin Laden be alive and planning an attack on the Twin Towers on that fateful morning of 2001, November 11th? If Germany wins the war, you can make a really good argument that none of those things happen. A really good argument. And if Germany doesn't release that virus into Russia, you can make a really good argument that, uh, really good argument that the Russian government would probably end up being more like an American govern government after the war. Which is also another reason why Truman possibly wanted to enter the war, or possibly at least wanted to broker the peace. To have an effect on the Russian government. By 1917, Russia is done playing a role in this war. Now, there will be a civil war in Russia, the White Army and the Red Army and the Bolsheviks and the fact that they abducted Tsar Nicholas II and his entire family and ended up slaughtering all of them. It's a big deal. But now, Germany has a chance to fully focus on the Western Front. Dan Carlin describes this war as two prized fighters slugging it out. Now, if you look at earlier wars, earlier battles, battles last a day. I feel like we've talked about this before. Battles last a day, a couple days at most. These battles that are happening in the 20th century are lasting weeks. In constant attrition, in constant combat. 
And these are definitely the days where nation states can take quite the punch and deal out quite the punch. But there's breaking points. There's breaking points. And these generals aren't getting it yet. The strategies that are coming into fruition during 1916 and 1917 that are finally starting to evolve, you can't forget that two years prior, you were throwing human waves at supported trenches with machine guns and artillery and death, pure death and barbed wire, and you were throwing human waves at it. Who's heard of 20,000 casualties in a day? Who's heard of the French 27,000 dead the first day? But one thing that they're learning is that they need equipment. The French now have metal helmets. The British now have metal helmets. And the Germans have changed their helmets to something that looks a little bit more like the World War II German helmet. So there's some adaptations. They're starting to understand. But how much of a bell curve and how much forgiveness do you give these generals? How many attempts do you give somebody when you're dealing with human lives before it becomes criminal? I don't know. Now, for your first question, what was the name of Nicholas II's son? What was the name of Nicholas II's son? Now, for your second question, What was he illed with, and how did Rasputin, according to modern historians, supposedly help his illness or soothe his pain? For your third question, what was the Russian battle where it suffered way more casualties, ten times more deaths, than the Germans, and what were those numbers, the casualty numbers, both for the Germans and the Russian side? For your fourth question, who was the main conspirator in Rasputin's assassination? Who was the main conspirator in Rasputin's assassination? For your fifth question, what ethnicity was the Tsarina and what was her name? What was the ethnicity of Tsar? I cannot say that. Ethnicity of Tsarina and what was her name? For your sixth question, where did Grigory Rasputin grow up? 
Where did Grigori Rasputin grow up? And for your last question, what was the total Russian deaths in the whole war? What was the Russian death number during World War One? Those are your seven questions. That is your seventh podcast. Thank you for listening. I know it's not as long as I said it would be, but it has a ridiculous amount of information. I know it's going to be a lot to take in. Thank you so much for listening. Um, make sure to get those questions into me for my class. If you're not in my class and you're just listening to this for fun because you know me or you heard about it or you stumbled upon it, thank you for listening. I, I appreciate it. If you have any critiques, if you have anything that I missed, if you have anything that I got wrong, don't be afraid to, to, to let me know. Or I don't know if you can do a, like a, a review on this stinking thing. I, I have no idea. But if I got something wrong, I would love to know. Um, I'm most, uh, most of the time I'm sitting with the sources in front of me. So sometimes they're wrong, sometimes I'm wrong, sometimes I just spew words by accident. But thank you so much for listening. Just I appreciate it. And have an awesome day or night or morning or breakfast or lunch or dinner.